0: Hello, and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello, my name's Neil Selwyn, and in this episode of Meet the Education Researcher, I'm talking with John Potter from the Institute of Education, University College London. Now, John's an ideal person to talk to about education during the COVID lockdown. He researches how children learn outside school and he also researches children's plays. So he's had heaps to think about and make sense of over these past few months of remote schooling. I was also interested in how the lockdown was impacting on academic life in the UK. So first off, I asked John for his thoughts on how the shift over to academic working from home was working for him.
1: Some aspects have been really good. I think meetings are are, are more efficient and uh, and quicker, but inevitably there is a loss of affect and embodiment that you get. Uh, so some aspects of personal communication are, are, are lost, and I miss that dropping into people. You know, walking across the floor of the office and so forth. But um, some time at home has been really beneficial. Certainly initially. I mean, one thing that's been really interesting has been I've been involved in the moving online teaching at home project that Alison Littlejohn and Martin Oliver started, the Moth Project, as it's known. And I got involved looking at images that people had uploaded as part of the survey that they put out. Um, It was question 18. Upload an image which shows how you're feeling about being at home, working from home. And there's a massive range of images in there. Some people did not do it at all. I analyzed 118 images, and some of them were really interesting compositions of people's workstations. Others were bits of memes and clip art that they'd grabbed from the internet to express a feeling. And there was a smaller subset where people had drawn images of themselves. So for some people, it's not been great. And uh, um, drawn images of um, particularly for women and and other carers in in the um, academic community, it's been very difficult. So there's one drawing where somebody is literally being pulled apart. You know, their arms are going in one direction as associate professor and they're going in the other direction as a as a parent and literally torn torn apart. So it's worked quite well for me. My children are grown up and they don't live here anymore. I accept fully that it does not work very well for other people where they have caring responsibilities, and that's coming across, and particularly gendered as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, I guess, I mean, any academic with a caring responsibility has found it really tough, if not impossible, to get on top of things. But, I mean, that was a research project that you managed to get done in response to the lockdown. I mean, how easy has it been to carry on with the research that you were doing before the lockdown?
1: That's been similar to the rest of it, in a way. I am between projects, so there have been periods of writing up anyway. So lockdown has benefited that in the sense that I've had a little bit more time and space in which to think. Certainly not having to travel on um, Southeastern Railway for two hours a day. You know, I might as well be living on the coast actually sometimes, as, as as in London itself, for the length of time it takes me to get to the office. So an extra two hours a day has been really beneficial during writing up phase of two key projects. So I've done, I've done quite a bit more writing. I've got a nice paper coming out very soon. I'll, I can talk a bit more about that later on. Um, but the other side of it, of course, is the teaching side. That is definitely not uh, straightforward.
0: I'm, su- I'm surprised to hear you say that you've not found the online teaching straightforward. I mean, you research how online teaching takes place. I mean, you've always taught online. What did you find a challenge?
1: The lockdown happened just towards the end of a module. And but that had moved in by complete irony because of our intake changing to many more international students who are living in London. That module had gradually moved offline. And so we then had to I had then had to quite quickly shift it online. And initially you find yourself doing the sorts of things that you always did or trying to like replicating synchronous teaching, which is a a foolhardy thing to, to do in many ways. I think some synchronous element will always have to be there, but you have to start thinking asynchronously because you have to start thinking about time zones and about connection and bandwidth and equity. And if you try to do everything synchronously, you're actually effectively disbarring people with poor connectivity or the the inability to, to make things work at the time. And also, um academics have got one head in the space of what they're they're thinking about. They do not want to be thinking about what kinds of things they need to do at the interface to make it work. so you know there are various cases there's the the thing that went out all over Twitter about that guy in America who'd done a brilliant lecture, but no one heard it because he was muted for an hour. You know, you get all of that sort of stuff, so that's that's much harder. I did one session where I had a guest speaker in a Bavarian farmhouse. 36 students some of whom were in China some of whom were in a quarantine hotel in China and some of whom were in London in in lockdown and a postgraduate teaching assistant in Athens and it was an hour and I was trying to do it synchronously but the end of that time I needed a lie down (laughs) because it's just not possible and it's not efficient and it doesn't work so what I do see happening is being genuinely blended and having Lots of asynchronous material available and then occasional synchronous breakout rooms, smaller conversations for shorter periods of time. So we are going to have to just adapt and not, not really not think it's the same thing all over again because it just isn't.
0: No, and that also brings me to the other part of our job. I mean, you travel a lot and you go to conferences, all of that's fallen off a cliff. I mean, what's going to happen there?
1: Well, I think it's going to be good from the point of view of the climate not that academic travel really accounts for too much. I mean, UCL was already introducing a policy of European travel being land-based, which I think is a really good thing. So short haul is by far the biggest villain in terms of, you know, climate change. So that kind of thing, you know, I'm probably a really big offender in that. I did a lot of traveling in the year before, but I was already thinking about how not to do that. The downside is that you that there is something about affect, embodiment and performance that you miss. And certainly in terms of the way that you read people, we're getting better at it with screens and laptops. But sitting in your shed talking through a screen is really not the same as reading a room. And those of us that really like face-to-face teaching actually face the same same issue as for conferences, which is you, you react to the way that people are reacting to you. And I think that will change the way people think about how they disseminate and present information. So there is an upside to conference travel. And of course, we have to remember that a number of academics are doing really great work at some distance with refugees and with poorer communities and so on. So an outright ban on it anyway was never going to be a good thing. But it has yeah. given us great pause for thought. And I, and I will attempt to go places much, much more by train, much more.
0: And also go with a purpose and make sure that when you travel, you're kind of getting the most out of it. Now, I like this idea of kind of pause for thought. I, mean, I wanted to talk to you really about the, yeah, your trains of thought and what you were thinking about before the pandemic, um, your, your kind of main areas of inquiry and interest, and, and perhaps how they've changed, what bits of what you were thinking about before are perhaps more important, and also what new angles you're now thinking of as well. And I wanted to focus on bits of work that you're well known for. Um, first of all, play you've done lots of work on children's play. I mean, what were you thinking about play before the pandemic and what are you now thinking about?
1: Well, we, I mean, that brings me to the paper I was talking about earlier. So I've been lucky enough to work on a couple of projects to do with play, but the most recent one was conducting the London Ethnography in Playing the Archive, a project which was led by Andrew Byrne in London and Helen Woolley up in Sheffield. And I was the I was in charge of the London ethnography and I worked with a brilliant researcher called Kate Cowan. And a lot of our thinking about play and about the use of space in playgrounds in particular, it was just so fascinatingly beginning to be theorised, if you see what I mean. We were just beginning to think about how to read it. So we both brought different perspectives on it. And she is very much a multimodal scholar. So she brought the elements of thinking about embodied movement through a space as meaning making. And I was interested in media cultures. And between us, we started to do some quite interesting thinking about our methodology and about how to re-theorise these spaces and re-theorise play in a, in a mediated context. So what was beginning to be interesting to me was that a sort of, as Andrew found and Jackie Marsh found in the previous project, the kind of talking back to the narrative about screens being just one way and bad and thinking about the way actually children make meaning from from screen-based play and bring it into their embodied play. So they invent new games and they invent new ways to do things. And they're endlessly creative and they're still running around and still playing all sorts of physical games in physical space in real time with each other during, a, during that kind of 15 minutes where they're let out of the, of the school. So that has been a really interesting way to think about dynamic literacies and all of the things that I've been writing about before, but also in the context of getting to know play, play theory uh, and rule-based games. And that was an amazing project. So that, I was already in that heads, headspace. So your question is, so what's changed about that aspect in lockdown? Well, now we're interested in thinking about what does pandemic play look like? And Kate and I are working on various ideas and proposals to put in around how children are recreating the spaces of play either in lockdown in their houses or when they go back into this peculiar situation of a space that they used to inhabit which is now controlled with a different set of rule-based systems our hunch is that children will once again respond to it by creating their own play of a different kind in those spaces and we know that they're doing this.
0: Yes, as you say, if the school and the space of the school has been rearranged and the rules have been rearranged and we're in a post-touch era, um, play takes on a different meaning.
1: Yeah, it does. They've been uh, doing things, we know they've been playing tag where they touch shadows and and, and stuff like that. Other playgrounds where children put their arms out and they pretend to be helicopters so they maintain social distance by spinning round and round through, through a play space. We've got all sorts of anecdotal evidence and what we'd like to do is to formalise this and to get children and their carers to tell stories about play during lockdown, how it goes on but how it changes and how it's influenced as well by media and by mediated communication. We know there's a lot of Zoom games between parents and children, between grandparents and children, between relatives that are very distant, always did play in this format but are now like round the corner from each other but now having to play through the screen with each other. So that's... uh, that's a really fruitful area of research. And I think I'd like to get, I'd like to get much more into that.
0: And and it was interesting, you were talking about um, the household and the home being a place where this play or school based play is now taking. And this brings me to your kind of second area of research that you're well known for this idea of learning outside the school and third spaces. And again, what were you thinking about before the pandemic? And has anything changed? Or are you now super relevant?
1: I think the whole third space thing has been uh, fabulously misunderstood so many times, but I, uh, and I talk about this a lot, but one thing about a third space in terms of the way that we, that Julian McDougall and I were writing about it in that book, is to disband the notion that it's an actual space, it's a metaphorical space, and sometimes the, things, the two things do coincide, so sometimes the metaphor is the space. So, for example, in, you know, museum education is the classic example or after school club where it's not got the habitus of home and it doesn't have the habitual behavior from school. It has a relaxation, but there is something about the space where the hierarchies are flattened. But if you talk, if you think about home now, that's that's a space which has now been invaded by school. So I coined this thing, which Ben Williamson tweeted me the other day to say that one of the acronyms that I'd come up with was now being used in an actual French Ministry of Education document. But I had this new thing called BIOS, which is not Biod, but it's bring your own school home. So, and, and that's when school invades the spaces of the home. And then a whole new set... Of, there are already rules in the home, but now there's a whole complicated set of rules about space and time and how things are organised. So when you say learning outside the school... It's learning inside the home, but with an inflection of school, with some online materials coming through and some hard pressed parents who are working anyway, trying to be teachers as, as well. So that whole nexus there is really, really fascinating. And I guess sometimes there's a case in which you could say a third space exists there where children are not in the same set of rule based systems. They're in a different set of rule based systems, but they're still having to access some kind of curriculum knowledge. And I guess it depends on how that's managed and how much time and space the parents or carers have to manage that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You were talking about kids having to now learn at home. But I guess the home is, is different. As you say, you've got parents who are working from home, or as I think Heather De Quincey put it, living at work. And so the whole nature of home actually takes on and the whole domestic setting and the domestic space, I guess, is different from the homes that you would have been thinking about and researching before the pandemic.
1: It's like territory that's been colonised and and with colonisation comes all sorts of uh, well, occasionally disastrous consequences. Of course, if you push the metaphor too far. But in terms of negotiation, it's a really difficult it's a really difficult area to work in. So I think that there is the potential for it to be great, and there is the potential for it to do great uh, harm as well. Actually, or, or for people's expectations to be raised too high. I, I think the educators that uh, I'm aware of who've Talked about to directly to parents and carers about what they should be doing. The ones who've done a good job are the ones who say, "You can only do so much. This is an extraordinary moment in history, and you can't beat yourself up about the amount of time that you are uh, able to give this, or your understanding even of the concepts that you are being required to elaborate on with your kids." Those people are genuinely trying to create a third space, and I think others where it's just a machine just a machine giving out worksheets, electronic worksheets, though possibly were the worst kind of school in the first place.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, we've talked about people doing all sorts of things they weren't doing before. Um, We're in a moment where things are clearly different. I guess my final question is just looking back, what do you think the real educational significance of all this is going to be? I mean, are we going to look back on this in 20 years' time as a truly kind of once-in-a-lifetime generation tipping point, a game-changer? Or is it just a blip that we're kind of over-egging at the moment that might just fade away? I mean, is any, what do you think is fundamentally going to alter?
1: It's a moment to think about what education is for, uh, this, where it takes place, how it takes place, and ultimately why it takes place, because the economies are going to be shifting. The pandemic takes place against the backdrop of massive change through climate change, an emergency which is currently taking a back seat but actually is still active in the background that that's, that seems to me to be a screamingly urgent thing to be to be dealing with so it will be a moment in which the digital has come and the school the schooling has come into the home and i think it'll be a moment in which we try to think much more about the purpose and the reach of education and why we're doing the things that we're doing so i'm not certain how it's going to change but it is going to change and it already is changing because of the questions we're having to ask about what is a school for? Why do we go there? And what kinds of things should we do there if we do go there?
0: Yeah, it's kind of brought home that we're in a state of crisis, even though, as you say, we're in a state of crisis before. So it's, yeah, it is. It is it, I think it is a moment where we are having to pause for thought. You're right.
1: Yeah, definitely. And that's, you know... A benefit one tiny benefit in a in an absolute catastrophe
0: absolutely well sorry to end on such a kind of downbeat note but i mean no it's been I'm, I'm happy that
1: things were asking questions it's good
0: <laughs> yeah no questions are good but we also need some answers at some point i guess well i mean thanks ever so much for taking the time to do this it's a very peculiar way to talk to you i'm much more used to talking to you face to face but i think we got away with it so i mean thanks ever so much and hopefully see you soon
1: thanks very much for asking me
0: cheers